Welcome to the Beyond High Performance Podcast, featuring content and conversations from me, Jason Jaggard, along with our elite coaches at Novus Global, their high-performing clients, and the faculty at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching. On this podcast, you'll hear some of the world's best executive coaches and high-performing leaders, artists, and athletes discuss how they continue to go beyond high performance in their lives and businesses. We give something to people that is immeasurable in a world that's oftentimes full of pain, full of uh, hardship. They can take a few moments and enjoy a Disney film. It may sound trivial, but these cartoons, they're not fleeting. They live with us forever. Today's episode is from the Meta Performance Show, where I sit down with high performers who continually aspire to go beyond high performance. On this episode, I sit down with Disney legend Floyd Norman and Disney artist Adrian Brown, and these two happen to be married. Floyd was hired by Walt Disney himself to work on Sleeping Beauty in the 1950s. He then went on to work on Mary Poppins, Bedknobs and Broomsticks, The Sword and the Stone, Robin Hood, and The Jungle Book. He worked with Hanna-Barbera, that's the Flintstones, Smurfs, and Scooby-Doo, as well as Sesame Street and Fat Albert, and then years later worked for Steve Jobs at Pixar on Toy Story 2 and Monsters, Inc. This guy has seen it all. Adrian Brown is an illustrator and art director for Disney Worldwide Publishing. Before coming to Disney, she was a show designer for theme park attractions, and she taught herself how to use Photoshop before it even went to market, and then got hired at Disney to work on their first digital book in the 90s. She was their first digital artist and helped usher Disney Publishing into the digital age. In this episode, we talk about the intersection of leadership and creativity, learning from the best in the world, and how to pave your own way when mentors can't be found. Hope you enjoy the show. So we have the one, the only, I guess the, the two and the only, Floyd and Adrian. Hello. Welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Hello. Hello. Thank you, Jason. Really two, I want to say two Disney legends, and I'm so excited to dive into this with you. I think there's a lot of nuggets of wisdom, If and I know I can already see Adrian rolling her eyes, some, some, some nuggets of wisdom that I'm excited to talk about. I think our audience is really, really, really going to enjoy this. So uh, my first question is actually for Adrian. So we're, we're going to we're going to get some of your stuff out of the way so then you can you can play whatever role you want to in this conversation. But part of the thing that I really enjoy about Floyd's story is reinvention and just making pivots in his career and doing different things. But then I was thinking as I you know watched the documentary and as I've known you, both of you, for a little bit of time, Adrian, I think one of your greatest works of art, obviously you've been at Disney for a while, but I think one of your greatest works of art is Floyd. Specifically, <laughs> you know... After you two met, there was a little bit of a reinvention yeah. that you facilitated for Floyd. Yeah. And I would love, Adrian, for you to talk a little bit about Floyd as your masterpiece. And then we'll get to other masterpieces that have happened in Floyd's life. <laughs> Flawed masterpiece. Well, I didn't see it that way. I just I just felt that he was a bad dresser. And, um, <laughs> and if we were going to hang out, that he was just going to have to do better. <laughs> and then I, I saw his wardrobe and, and I saw that he was dyeing his hair, which was really stupid. And, and I told him, <laughs> stop dyeing your hair. And um, we started out by getting him out of his clothes from the 70s. And I put him in denim. And then I from went the from 70s. denim. Yes. He had flares when I met you. Are you kidding? So he went from denim to linen. And I got him his first linen suit. Then I got him a, a nice shirt and finally um, a great suit. And it was a gradual thing. And now... He likes that kind of stuff, and he can now kind of pick out his own stuff, kind of. Kind of. Kind of. I still buy. I still buy his clothes. Well, yeah, and like there was, you know, there was the hat. Well, the hat was actually it. It wasn't a deliberate thing. We were at Comic Con with our good friends Don and Gordon, and we went into the Betty Page store, and they had the fedora. And Gordon, uh, our good friend Gordon, who passed away, he said, "Oh, put it on, Floyd." So Floyd put it on. 
And we all were like, wow, that's nice. And then Gordon adjusted it on his head and that was it. And he's been wearing it ever since. And I think that was like 2009, 2010. Yeah. My, like my new image. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I like that. And by the way, Floyd, so for you, what was it about Adrian that, that made you want to put up with someone buying you, telling you to change your hair and buying things and put a hat on, change your glasses, get rid of the aviators? Well, what made you open to even doing that? Well, number one, she was very intimidating. But that's, <laughs> that's not necessarily a bad thing. Mm-hmm. I recognized in her, she knew what she wanted. She was, she was smart. I mean, probably the smartest woman I've ever met. Mm, yeah, me too. <laughs> and, and so I, I, I didn't want to counter her. I thought <laughs> it would be better if I would just listen to her <laughs> and maybe learn a few things. I mean, yeah, she was she was at least 20 years younger than 21, than 21 years younger. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But uh, no babe in the woods, a lot smarter <laughs> in many ways than I was. So uh, I decided uh, I would shut up and listen and learn. Well, uh, and it worked uh, out because now your kids say that you dress cooler than they do. <laughs> well, see, it worked. It worked. Sometimes it, 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 it pays us to pay attention. Well, actually, it, it made him look younger. I think mm. um, when I met him, he. Again, he was wearing like old guy clothes and stuff, and, and he wasn't really thinking about it. <laughs> old then, guy clothes. Once we changed his glasses and he got the Armani frames, which he picked out, by the way. Hmm. But he just began to look younger than his age, and, and he's continued to do that. And he's 86 years old, and he still he, he, he doesn't look like he's 86, you know, and he looks pretty good. Yeah, I don't know. What, is, what does 86 look like? I don't know what it looks like. Well, that's exactly right. Well, and I like I like what you said, Floyd, about her knowing what she wanted. And while you may not have known what you wanted when it comes to fashion, I'm going to try to segue <laughs> back to the beginning. You did know when you were young, before when you were a kid, you knew you wanted to work for Walt Disney. Right. And so that that took you to Pacific Art Center. Or uh, Am I saying that right? Or the, no. Art Center College of Design. In Pasadena. That's in where Pasadena. Yeah, in well, Pasadena. Of course, at that, time, well, was in LA. at that time, it was located in Los Angeles. Eventually, okay. the school moved to Pasadena. Well, and that was quite the hub of creativity. And, you know, I think Walt oftentimes picked artists straight out of, of Cal Arts and then the Art Center. Right. So what was that like being there at that time? Because, I mean, a lot of really fantastic artists came out of that space. Well, it was somewhat intimidating. Uh, keep in mind, uh, I had just graduated from high school. <laughs> I was really a, a lucky kid. I, I, I received a scholarship from the good people in Santa Barbara, California, who, who made it possible for me to attend Art Center, which was a very prestigious school at the time. A lot yeah. of top illustrators, top designers, they were big in uh, automotive design, uh, fashion design. Mm-hmm. It was quite the school. And um, leaving, you know, high school and, and moving on to kind of like, this is the big time. It's like, you know, leaving school and going on to university. Yeah. You kind of felt like a, uh, finally, kind of like a grown-up as yeah. you left home, moved out on your own, and, and began to uh, go to school and learn a few things. So it was a really a, a lucky break for me to to be able to attend Art Center to have some of the finest uh, instructors uh, in the country. Um, and, and of course, the student body that was just full of uh, world-class artists and illustrators. So it was a great place to be back in the 50s. Now, just out of curiosity, Adrian, I'm kind of watching you, watching Floyd as he answers. Would you agree that it was a lucky break? I imagine there's some degree of merit that got you into that space. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, a degree. I, I would say that he was in the right place at the right time. Okay. And I think he was in a, in a city 
that uh, was open to him. Santa Barbara. You know, Santa Barbara wasn't yeah. like the rest of America for a yeah. black man at that time. So mm-hmm. he, in the sense of that, he left out that his parents moved to Santa Barbara and he was born there. Yeah. So he probably wouldn't have gone that way if he lived someplace else. Yeah. If his no, that makes sense. in Natchez, Mississippi, that probably would not have happened for him. Man, yeah, different story. A different That's a whole other story. Yeah. 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 Well, I appreciate you saying that. And it's a four-year program. And then in your third year, you got essentially picked. I, I was really fascinated by that. I'm always fascinated by people who get picked. What would you say was unique about you? Like, why did Disney notice you? What was it about you that would a- allow that to happen in your third year? They well, needed people. They, yeah, they that, needed <laughs> artists really, really bad. Yeah, and really. He just happened to be one of the people that applied for that for that program. Yeah, they were I, taking all I had applied years earlier, and they, uh-huh. and, uh, and they they recommended that I go to school, which was a to me a great recommendation. Uh, that was good advice. Yeah, uh, but it so happened that about three years later, they were in desperate need of artists because Disney was expanding. It was exploding at mm. that time and they were doing so many things and they needed more talented, creative people. Mm. And so they went, they started going through the, the files, you know, and all of the young kids who had applied for jobs some years earlier, they began making phone calls. Of course, I was still a student at Art Center and I received the phone call one Friday afternoon, basically saying, do you still want that job? Uh, we got a job for you if you want it. So then the reason why they had you in the file is because you had applied earlier. I mean, right. you, how old were you and applied the first time? I was 17 years old. Oh, I love that. 17 yeah. years old, you apply, and then they give you good advice. They say, hey, you got to beef up your chops a little bit. You got to go to school. Right. And by the way, I, I want to make sure, because we have younger listeners sometimes who listen to this, which is really just my nephews. Yeah. Like, going to school is a good idea, but it was it was not like a liberal arts school. It was a trade school in terms of it was going to teach you specifically to do the thing that you were really passionate about. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, choosing art center. And, and it wasn't made capriciously. I, I looked at a lot of schools before finally deciding on art center, College yeah. of Design. That was a school that came highly recommended. Yeah. And of course, by many of the uh, my my friends and, and, and neighbors in Santa Barbara who were also aware of the school also recommended the school highly. Hmm. So it was kind of a big deal for me to, yeah. to be able to attend Art Center. Yeah, well, then I appreciate that you applied when you were 17. And even yeah. though you got reje- like rejected, to use a strong word. And not really rejected, but sort of uh, basically given some sound advice. A path. That, yeah, yeah, kid, we could give you a job right now. However... We recommend that you go off to school and learn a few things and then come back. Oh, interesting. So it wasn't like a, hey, don't quit your day job. It was like, no, you've got some real talent and we could yeah. take you. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well, and then that positive impression is what got you on their radar. If yeah. you didn't apply when you were 17, do you think you would have gotten that phone call? Well, probably not because they would not have had my name on file. Yeah. Keep in mind, when I applied as a 17-year-old kid, they didn't just shoo me away. They kept my name on file. Yeah. Uh, so I guess Disney was, the, they knew what they were doing. Yeah. They no knew that uh, one day the need might arise. And so that's why three years later, I got that phone call one Friday afternoon. That's great. Well, and we're, we're going to come to talent development in a second. So I want to put yeah. a pin in that. So now your first job, you're working, I believe, on Sleeping Beauty. And you're, you're working for Frank and Ollie, who 
you know, Frank Thompson and Ollie Johnston. The nine old men, yeah. Yeah, two of the nine old men and just legends, legends. Yeah. And those are your directing animators, is that right? Well, pretty much everybody at Disney at that time was was a legend. I mean, keep in <laughs> mind for a, a kid like me who grew up watching Disney cartoons, when I came to Disney in the 1950s, all the women and men who were there working, so many of them had worked on the classic Disney films I saw as a child. So mm. I had the opportunity to be mentored by my heroes. Yeah. The, wow. the, the greats of animation and the list is too long. I mean, the nine old men, just a small part of that group, but all of these incredible talents, the, the men and women who made the films I grew up watching were still there at the Disney studio and they became my teachers. They became my mentors and they put us through sort of a boot camp. An animation boot camp, really, and whipped us kids into shape. and And I'll tell you, they were not easy. At Disney, they were kind of like the Marine Corps of animation, and they put us through a rigorous training. And they did not accept good or good enough. They wanted you to be your very best. And if you if you weren't performing up to that level, you you heard about it. Like like a SEAL program, do people get ejected from that program? Like, did it start with fifty, and then you know, two months later, there's only five left, or anything? How, <laughs> how did the boot camp work? Yes, yes, indeed, there was attrition, and and, uh, and there were those who simply couldn't cut it. They either were let go or they left on their own. Hmm. Many just left on their own. They they made a conscious choice to say, well, maybe I'd better <laughs> maybe I'd better try something else. But, but those of us who were truly dedicated and were committed to this profession, and I tell that to a lot of my students, commitment is very important. Hmm. You have to dedicate yourself to doing this job and being the very best you can be. Yeah. Well, to that end, you know, you had to work with Frank and Ollie for a while. I, th I think a lot about teams and for lack of a better phrase, like boss and employee relationships and how to do that well, you know, how to be a good employee, but also how to be a good boss. And yeah. can you share anything that you learned from Frank and Ollie in terms of how to lead or anything that you notice about them as managers? Yeah, well, oh my, so many stories, many, many stories. And I'll, I'll, I'll give you one example. Yeah, since please. You mentioned Frank and Ollie. Yeah. Frank Thomas was one of uh, Disney's finest animators. He, he was one of the nine old men, a truly great animator a man that I considered not only uh, uh, my, my teacher, but, but, but also my friend. But back in those days, I was just a, uh, a confident young kid. And I'd been at the studio for, for a while and, and I felt pretty full of myself. I felt I had learned a few things and I was pretty darn good. Hmm. Well, one day as I was walking down the hallway, Frank Thomas called me into his office and he said, uh, Floyd, I'd like to uh, speak to you about that last scene you did. You know, Frank was a very soft-spoken, very gently, kindly old man, kindly mm -hmm. old gentleman. Mm -hmm. Well, anyway, Frank called me into his office, and for the next hour or so, I was thoroughly chewed out. By <laughs> Hold on, what does that look like? What does being chewed out look like? Uh, Frank read me the riot act mm -hmm. because I had animated a scene that was subpar. Mm -hmm. And at Disney, you only deliver your your best work, your finest work. And they accepted nothing less. Hmm. Well, you know, and I was not the only one who received, uh, you know, this kind of treatment because, like I said, these old guys were tough. Yeah. You know, they were not easy. So I, I, I do not kid you when I say I left that office that afternoon in tears. Hmm. Literally, 
I'm, I'm talking, and I, and I was not the only one who, who went through this process. Yeah. Like I said, these men and women, and the women too, were tough, but they yeah. made us, they made us the artists we, we uh, eventually turned out to be. Well, and I guess that's one of the questions too, because I know that you've mentioned about Walt, that he was tough. Yes. And Steve Jobs, that he was also very tough. And I think you people bet. kind of know about Steve Jobs' archetype. Floyd's been able to work with Steve Jobs, Walt Disney. Uh, Steve was a you know, owned Pixar. One of the things I was really curious to ask about that from you, and it sounds like that was part of the culture, both with Frank and Ollie and others and, and with Walt himself and with Steve Jobs later. I guess the question I want to ask is why do people put up with it? Like, I, I think there's a character type that, and this is the narrative I think people craft. And I want, I would love for you to, to speak yeah. to it. I think people say, yeah, you know, Steve was, and he's easier to say about Steve because of his brand, but like Steve was a jerk, <laughs> yeah. you know, but people wanted to be around because at least the work was meaningful. Is it, yeah. is it that, or is it something else? Why didn't people just leave and quit Disney? Why, why did people just say, screw you, Walt, and then go and do something else? Well, some people did. <laughs> oh yeah. Some people did. Well, you know what? Uh, I, I've had the opportunity to, to, uh, be around some pretty impressive leaders during my career. Uh, I wish I could have been one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's debatable. But, okay. But, uh, well, but, you know, Walt Disney and Steve Jobs shared one thing in common. Actually, they shared many things in common. They were both extremely demanding, hmm. uh, not easy to work for. But they were men who had a vision uh, and men who settled for nothing less than your, your, your best. I think that kind of individual draws out the best in you. Hmm. You recognize that it's not going to be an easy journey. You recognize that you're going to screw up and you're going to you're going to hear from the boss when you do. However, you know that if you make it, if you survive, you know that you please somebody who was not easy to please, who was uh, very tough, very demanding. And there's a sense of accomplishment. Hmm. And the fact that you survive hmm. this, this battlefield, you know, <laughs> the fact that you made it through to the other side and even... You know, one day I, I received a compliment from from Steve Jobs, hmm. and I honestly felt like I was walking on the cloud the rest of the day because Steve Jobs actually thanked me for for uh, a job I had done. What was the thing that you had done, and what did he thank you for? We were working on the uh, sequel to Toy Story up at mm -hmm. Pixar, and and it was a tough job, and it, it required uh, a lot of work, actually almost seven days a week. Wow. But we had really, um, we really poured our heart into that film, uh, both spiritually and physically, because it was very demanding. But to get a thank you from the big boss himself, that was like getting the thank you from Walt Disney. Hmm. And Walt did not pass out compliments. He was not generous with compliments. And the compliment from Walt Disney was when Walt said, okay, that'll work. Well, <laughs> that was a big, that was a big deal. That was a big deal that Walt said that. So when you get a, a thank you from Steve Jobs, this is what makes your job worthwhile because you know that you're working for the best. And that, that means that you're up there, you know, you're on the A team, you know, you're not, you're not on the C team, the B team. You're up there working with the most demanding bosses and, and, and you're making it through. So you know, it, make, it makes you feel good about, you know, what you've accomplished. Yeah. So a few things I hear there is it's a little bit about making someone else happy, which feels good. But also to do that, you're in this elite squad. And I also make up Floyd yeah. that when they are demanding, it's not because they're trying to be difficult. They're not trying yeah. to hurt you. 
they're being difficult as an effort to serve the vision and to right. serve you as an artist to bring out your best. Exactly. Exactly. And I wonder if sometimes people miss that point. It's like, I think some leaders study Steve and to some degree Walt and they think, oh, they're tough. So I'm going to be tough. Yeah. As if that's the solution. Whereas, no, no, they were tough because they were so fiercely committed to bringing out the best in people right. and, and making something great. Yeah. Making something truly great. Yeah. Timeless. Yeah. Well, timeless. So, in, exactly. so in, in that regard, then I'm curious, you mentioned the boot camp, which I think is fascinating. And even as we talk to other leaders on the podcast, one of the things I'm really interested about is like boot camp onboardings. How do you train leaders? How do you create culture? How do you, when you bring in people and it sounds like when you, you know, were plucked as a kid to work with Frank and Ollie, by the way, not to regress, but how long was the boot camp? Well, you know, <laughs> initially 30 days. Huh. Initially, you had a month to pretty much prove yourself whether you were worthy of, of, of working at the Walt Disney Studios. Wow. So the men and women who came in, again, most of them students, mm -hmm. most right out of school, were given a month to prove themselves. And if you made it through that those first 30, 31 days, then you were on the payroll. You had a job, kind of, sort of. <laughs> but then again, you had to continue as you moved up the ladder to continue to improve yourself, to grow and become a better artist, a better animator, a better designer, whatever it was you were shooting for. So in one sense, your training period never really ended because I always felt like I was always in training for the next challenge that was about to come my way. And one of those big challenges was given to me by Walt Disney himself when he made the decision to put me in his, in his story department something I never even anticipated, but once again, another challenge, and I had to rise to the occasion. Now, what does that mean, his story department? Were there multiple story departments across the company, and one of them was kind of his Navy SEAL team, or how did that work? Well, they were all walled story departments. It's just that they were working on different projects. I see. And the project, you, was it the Jungle Book? Is that what you and, were? In this case, of one of Walt's many projects, the Jungle Book was one of them. Hmm. He was having difficulty with that particular motion picture, and he needed a new story team. And lo and behold, I was picked to be part of that new story team. Yeah, that's fantastic. So then I feel like this is such a lazy question, but I, I, have, <laughs> to, I have to ask it. Like, what was it like being in a room with Walt Disney? That's the only question like that that I'm going to ask because there's other things I want to ask about. But like, cause, so you were in like pitch meetings. You were in, were you, were you over in the sweat box with, with Walt? And like, were you over? Yeah, but, uh, uh all of the above, uh, pitch meetings, uh, story meetings, uh, sweat box sessions, there with the boss. And it's kind of funny because looking back on it, I, I, I look back and, and realize what a remarkable time that was and what a, an honor and a privilege to be in that same room with Walt Disney. At the time, I didn't think about it, you know, in that way. At the time, it was I was just a guy doing my job. Yeah. And I never thought that this was anything significant. Hmm. Looking back on it, sure, it certainly was. But at the time, we were just going to work and doing our job. Day to day, it didn't seem like a big deal. No, that makes sense. And just to explain to our listeners too, a sweat box session, I believe it's when you get in there and you're watching the dailies, you're watching the drawings and right. figuring out what works, what doesn't work, trying to make it better, you know, yeah. add, some, add some Easter eggs and those types of things. Yeah, were there any moments that you remember with Walt and during those times that are particularly interesting to you from like a leadership perspective? Like how did he lead the room or did he lead the room or other people in charge when he was in the room? Oh my, no, no. <laughs> when Walt entered the room, 
he was in charge. Uh, everybody knew that. Hmm. There, there was no doubt about it. Uh, Walt Disney was the kind of guy, when he enters the room, everything changes because now the boss is here. It didn't matter whether you were in, the, in a hallway, in a conference room, in, in a projection room where we watched the dailies. When Walt Disney walked into the room, he was most definitely in charge. And clearly, clearly the leader. Uh, no one had any doubt about that. I, cert- I certainly didn't. How would you describe that? Like, what was it that he did or what was the impact in the room? His presence. Steve Jobs had it too. Steve Jobs could enter a room and everybody was aware Steve Jobs is now in the room. Hmm. Uh, I'd better watch what I say or maybe I just better keep my mouth shut. <laughs> That's the kind of behavior that the, the uh, leader inspires. Now, if the leader speaks to you, then you better darn well ha- have uh, an answer. And I recall the story, and again, I'm not sure if the story is even true or not. It's been making the rounds for years, is that one, one day Steve Jobs stepped into an elevator and he asked the person in the elevator what his job was, and the person could not give a satisfactory answer. So that by the time the elevator arrived at, its, uh, at the bottom floor, the guy had already been fired. Let's <laughs> <laughs> see. Yeah, see, that's, more, that's the stories that I think we're familiar with. Yeah. And it's like, yeah. why would anyone want to work for that? But you have to go back to, okay, yeah, we're part of something great. We're making something <laughs> great. So then, so it's interesting too that Walt picked you for his story department because you were younger. Were you the youngest person in the room? Believe it or not, I was. I was. Uh, I, I didn't really think about it that much at the time. But looking back, yeah, I was kind of like the young kid in the room. No, wasn't, um, wasn't, wasn't she in there with you? She's the same age you were. Uh, a young woman? Oh, you mean when you were doing the story team? Oh, the, when you came to Disney, they oh, were no, the no, same the, age. Uh, I think we were talking about the story team on the Jungle yeah. Book, right? Definitely, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what's interesting to me about that is how they groomed talent. What are the opportunities that Disney gave at that time? Young animators, how did they how did they test your chops? What was the developmental process to kind of help you grow? Because if you don't if you don't develop a talent pipeline, yeah. you're going to dry up and you get in trouble. So, how did they do that in the early days? Well, in the early days, and I, I suppose Adrian could say it's probably the same way today. Yeah. It's that you, you develop young talent by bringing in young people, seeing, seeing what they can do and giving them the opportunity hmm. to, to prove themselves, to show that uh, they can do the job. I mean, my wife is very demanding when <laughs> young people come in. I, I know that one of the first questions she would ask a young person, a young man or a no, woman. No, those are freelance. They're not, they're not becoming Disney employees. They're just freelancers. But they're still doing Disney work. Yeah. And you always ask them, are you any good? I, I always ha, love that. That's great. So, Adrian, how do you onboard the folks that you hire? Well, I'm not, I don't hire them until um, I've seen what they, can, what they can do. When I hire freelancers, yes, they better. they already have to be able to do what I want them to do before I hire them. But as Floyd was saying, if I go and I'm looking at portfolios or someone comes and shows me their work, that's when I ask them if they're any good. And what are you listening for when they say that? Because I mean, obviously the answer is yes. If- yeah. <laughs> no, because, because a lot of people, when I ask that question, they don't have a response and they, they're yeah. very confused. They're taken aback. And mm. they look at me like, I don't understand how to answer that. And then my, my point is that, well, if you don't think you're any good, why should I even waste my time looking at your yeah. work. Now, I don't really mean that I'll definitely look at their work, yeah. but I'm trying to get them to think about do they think that they're good enough to do what they what they want to do or should they be better or whatever. And then yeah. I also tell them that not everybody's going to be the best. 
you also have to recognize if you can't do it. Hmm. You know, a lot of people are told, you know, that everybody gets a trophy thing. Well, everybody can be a really good artist, just work really hard. No, hmm. no, not really. Yeah. No, there are some <laughs> people that are better than other people, and that's just the way it is. Some and are so, a lot better. <laughs> and so you have to recognize when you're doing your very best and it's not stacking up to what you know is what people you know, are looking for or what they want. You have to recognize, well, maybe I'm not going to be that. I'm in something yeah. else. So, so. so is that question Adrian asked to, to test ahead of time to see if they're okay with growing or working or striving or are they no, okay with not? You just want to know what they think about themselves. Mm. For me, it's just a it's a it's a confidence thing. Yeah, you know, um, I I don't come from any structured background. I didn't go to art school. And I didn't do any of those things. So my my journey as an artist is purely my in particular journey and what I've learned in my sixty five years of living. Self taught. Yeah, your hustle, which is, which is pretty amazing. So then, how did you, Adrian? How did you come to Disney? Well, when I first came to California, I applied. Again, I never went to art school, but I've been an artist, you know. And I had my portfolio, and Disney came in 1983 or something like that. And uh, they said, well, you didn't go to art school. Go back to art school and come back to us when you went to art school. Well, I was 26 years old, newly divorced. I had no money. So going to school at that point was not going to happen. Yeah. So I said, well, okay. So I left, and... Um, I got a job working in theme parks, and then I met a person that taught me how to use a computer at the very beginning of digital, when Photoshop, when it was just zero, it wasn't even one. And uh, I, I really loved it. And then uh, I heard that Disney was looking to hire some digital artists. They were going to do their first digital book, and my friend was working at Disney, and I got an interview. I came in. and uh, well, That was my book, too. Well, it was funny yeah. because the first man yeah. that I met, I won't say his name, but the first man that I met was extremely dismissal. He said, well, I don't even want to look at your stuff. Just don't even sit down. Hmm. We're not we're not doing anything digital. So why are you here? Goodbye. Hmm. And then I met another guy who says, you know, we're going to be hiring, but it won't be till April of 93. And he was true to his word. And he brought me in to help them do their first digital book because they literally didn't know quite what they were doing. Hmm. Yeah, we didn't know what we were doing, to be quite honest. <laughs> Adrian, that's pretty extraordinary to be hired at one of the most prestigious art companies in the world, being self-taught and and then just applying. Do you think, just to the point to where you ask people, are you any good? And you do have a great confidence about you as much as you don't like to be in front of cameras and things. Do you think that that's part of what got you the job is they could smell your swagger? Like they could tell, or did you have gravitas when you were applying? Did you did you lead with that? or? I think not as much as I do now. I'm a different person than I was back then. But I think that the guy that saw my stuff said, oh, my goodness, she understands the computer. He did see my artwork that I had done, some stuff I'd done in Photoshop. Mm -hmm. And he realized we don't know anybody that knows how to do this. I think we better hire her. So it wasn't anything so much that I said as much as it was that he looked at what I had and says, oh, we need yeah. her. And then when I got the job yeah. and when I realized that Floyd and the other guys that have since become my friends did not know what they were doing. <laughs> Um, that's when my confidence was like, these guys are idiots. Well, Let me show them what. what see what I mean? Yeah. She called. She called us idiots. <laughs> they were. Well, we were learners. We were, le we were learners. Well, there's a few things about that too, Adrian. Like one of the things I like is yeah. you took a job over in theme parks. You took the job that was available, 
which I think a lot of people are sometimes are entitled and they, you know, blah, blah, blah. But you took the open door and then you have your chops and then you looked for how you could add value. And yeah. there was a deficit. Well, I was just hungry. No, <laughs> literally, this was more about I've never had um, like a goal. I've always wanted to be an artist, but I, and I talked to some other kids. When I was coming up, there was no YouTube and Comic Con, no other way to know how to be an artist. I didn't know what jobs were available as an artist. All I knew was either you're a fine artist or you're not. Mm. And so everything I learned, I just learned by accident or just moving through life through the 70s and, and, and the 80s. Observation. And and I saw people illustrating. And I said, well, I want to be an illustrator. Mm. And I was stuck at this company called Landmark designing theme parks for Japan. Mm. And uh, I enjoyed it, but that's not really what I wanted. But when they let me go, I, I, just, I was just trying to find a way to eat. And then a friend of mine mm-hmm. told me about Disney, and I went in. And now I already was, was very nervous because they had ignored me the first time I came yeah. in. So I wasn't feeling real good about it. Yeah. But I knew I had something that, that, that might work. So I literally came into Disney through the back door. I love that. I and, did not come into the yeah, front yeah. door. And I, ended up in my office. I by did the not. Way. As a matter of fact, I didn't even do it. I didn't even do an application. I yeah. was hired as a freelancer. So I never, ever did an application. None of that. I was strictly a freelancer, which sure. I loved. So then when Adrian comes into your office, Floyd, like, was it, did you notice her immediately? Who, like, who noticed? I couldn't help <laughs> She was at my desk. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, yeah. I mean, but you were like, were you like, hello? Or were you, did you hello. guys got to play it like office cool for a while before you, you know, fell madly in love? You know, I, I will say that the, our very first day, we talked the entire day. Mm. I mean, I, I, I remember that quite well that we literally talked from the moment he came in when he wasn't supposed to be there that day. He's supposed to be at home sick. I was out sick. Yeah. And he came in and we literally talked the entire hmm. day. And it just felt like I had, I had known him all my life, but I had no idea who he was or what he had done. And it's funny. I didn't even know he was black. And when <laughs> my dad said in his office, he had pictures of everybody. There were white people, black people, Asian people. It was all kinds of people. So I really couldn't tell whose office I was in. Mm. You couldn't, you know, there was no... Markers. Know, every, no, it was everybody. There was no evidence that no, I was no black. No evidence that he was black. <laughs> <laughs> that speaks in some ways to the, you know, the value for diversity. Floyd, I've heard you talk uh, about when you got hired and, you know, you're celebrated as the, and rightfully so, as the first black animator at Disney, but, you know, you kind of push back against that a little bit because there was yeah. a lot of things there. But I do think there's oftentimes a connection between creativity and diversity. And... You know, you you two have worked for one of the most creative companies in the history of the world. Yeah. I'd like to hear, in your opinion, what do you think makes a great creative culture? And it sounds like even Adrian at Landmark, you enjoyed that space and they were creating roller coasters in Japan. That's pretty cool. Like you've been a, a part of a lot of different cultures and you know, Floyd at Hanna-Barbera, a very different kind of creative culture than than Disney. Yeah. But you've, you've, you both of you have been able to survey many different types of world-class creative cultures. In your opinion... What makes a great creative culture, especially for think about leaders who are wanting to create creative cultures in, in their companies? What could they do? Or how could they model that? I, I would. I'm going to answer because um, the department that I work in at Disney, and I won't mention my boss's name because he probably would hate for anyone to know his name. <laughs> but um, I've been with this with this department for um, 28 years. Wow! So I came there as a freelancer, and then they hired me um, 18 years ago. And uh, we've all been together. Most of us have been together for at, the, at the least 20 years, most of us, a couple people, a little less. And I would say that 
my boss fosters an environment of creativity because he's an artist. He's an, he's an odd duck at Disney. He's <laughs> actually a vice president who happens to be an artist. Yeah, an executive who happens to be that an artist. That does not happen at Disney. Yeah. And hmm. creatives are not necessarily celebrated. But my boss, he believes in the legacy of Disney. He believes in what Walt started. He loves the legacy of Disney publishing and how it started back in the 30s. Mm-hmm. And he celebrates that. And so we're in an environment where, because of him, we are, we're, we're cherished. And it's one of the few departments at Disney that I feel that artists are cherished. I hate mm-hmm. to say that about Disney, but I'm saying it as an artist. Yeah. Not if you're managing or marketing and all that. I'm talking about if you are, if you are actually an artist who draws, creates, paints within the computer, whatever. My department is one of the few departments that cherishes that ability. And my boss protects us yeah. from people who don't cherish that ability. Yeah. And I won't say much more than yeah. that because we have a lot of stuff happening at Disney right sure. now. Sure. Well, you know, and there's a lot to say about that. As a leader, are you cherishing the various people for the, what they're contributing? As I reflect on my leadership, there's always room to grow. There's usually in any company, there's like favorite departments and departments that get neglected and just kind of evaluating that and how can you celebrate and cherish and value everyone for what they're bringing to the organization. The other thing I hear you saying, Adrian, is is creating a sense of legacy. You know, like I think about the companies that I get to help run and and to say, are we casting a vision that's Disney big? Are we creating a legacy or a desire to do something that people want to be a part of because they're going to be proud to tell their kids that they were doing this someday? And yeah. I think Walt did a great job of that. And that impact is being felt even decades after his death. There's just still this desire to protect and honor and hold up the Disney brand for what it was at its best. Yeah. Floyd, would you, would you add anything to that in terms of what makes a great creative culture from your perspective? Yeah. One of the great things about working for Walt Disney and, and Walt Disney in particular was that you knew you were working for a great company uh, because you, you knew that, that the leadership you know, had a vision. They wanted to do something good. They wanted to do something great. They wanted to create something. Visionaries like Walt Disney, Steve Jobs, who who just go beyond most people because they see what the average person doesn't see. They, they see a future that uh, most people cannot even imagine. And so when you work at a company like this, you, you really, it pulls you in. I mean, if you're that kind of person where you want to leave your mark, you know, where you want to, as Steve would say, put a dent in the universe. You want to work for a company that has a culture that that uh, cherishes, you know, innovation mm-hmm. and creativity and, and getting the best from everybody. Uh, to be a part of a company like that, it's not just a job, but but it's 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 your life. And and I've been really lucky that when I would get up to go to work every day, I wasn't going off to a job, but I was going off to do something I really loved. And few people can say that about the work they do. Yeah, You know, they look back on a, on a career. They may have achieved some degree of success. They may have made a lot of money. But there's a fulfillment that a lot of us gain by working for Walt Disney, and Walt Disney in particular, because that was something that, I think most people miss out on not just having a job, but having a, a, a career yeah. that was truly uh, worthwhile. Yeah, significant. Yeah. yeah. And even to those who are listening, you know, 
I think sometimes people are like, oh, you know, I can't be Steve Jobs, or I can't be Walt or other great leaders. Um, but I think yeah. it is worth asking, hey, what, what is the bigger picture? What is the bigger vision? Is it just about profit? Is it just about, and profit's fine, you know, but like what is the kind of the, the mythos, the mythological thing that you're inviting people to be a part of to where they, they're going to yeah. spend their one and only life working together and working yeah. with you and what can you do to make it worth it? Uh, that's I think right. that's worth listening to and, and the modeling our lives after. And then that earns in some ways that once you find that thing, then you can create a little tougher environment because now the struggle is worth it rather than just being a struggle for struggle's sake. Yeah. Final yeah. question. I found this quote that I really loved Floyd that you said one time, and I don't, I want to know, is this an original? Did you learn this from other animators when you were being mentored? Uh, and the quote is don't watch the movie, watch the audience. Uh, I just love that when I think about leadership, when I think about management, when I think about public speaking or any, or any of the arts right. or anything, can you tell us where that came from and what you mean by that? Yeah. Well, you know, it's what we do touches people. One of the things Walt Disney taught us, and, and, and this quote actually comes from the old man himself, comes from Walt Disney. He said, when you uh, sit in a movie theater and there's a Disney film up on the, on the big screen, he said, don't watch the screen watch the audience, watch how they respond to what's up there on that screen, how they react. Uh, I'll never forget uh, looking at the face of a child as she watched a Disney movie. And there was just uh, just uh, the broadest smile on her face. Her, her face seemed to be glowing. She was so enchanted by the magic up on the screen. Mm. That's something we're able to give the audiences, not just little children, but older folks as well, grandmas and grandpas, make them chuckle, make them laugh. We give something to people that is immeasurable. Hmm. We give them joy, we give them happiness in a world that's oftentimes full of pain, full of uh, hardships, full of hurt. Yeah. But they can take a few moments and enjoy a Disney film and enjoy uh, a beautiful song and uh, some fun and laughter. Uh, that stuff's important too. It may sound trivial because, oh, a bunch of people watching cartoons. But these cartoons, they're not fleeting. They live with us forever. Yeah. And we pass them on to our children and they pass them on to our grandchildren. There's, uh, it sounds corny, but when I, when I talk about Disney magic, there truly is. Disney magic. And I know it because I've seen it. I've touched it. I've helped create it. And I'll tell you, when you can give something like that to people, there's nothing better. Well, I, and I want to thank you for that. One is, I think you two are magical. I really, I, I, re I think, I think Adrian is, I think she's, she's chuckling over here. I think she's mocking me. <laughs> well, you two, I, I, I really think so. <laughs> I just want to thank you for your time. I think you two are so great. I always enjoy being around the both of you. You're such wonderful foils for each other. <laughs> You're such distinct personalities. And Adrian, yeah, we are. Really, especially Adrian, I want to thank you for sharing some of your story. And I'm going to talk to your agent and see if we can bring you back on for another time. And because uh, I think we just scratched <laughs> the uh, surface, we, the tip of the iceberg of all the things that both of you have experienced in terms of art and leadership and creating wonderful magic for others. So thank you to both of you for your contribution to so many people's childhoods and making them a little bit brighter, a little bit better and giving us things to aspire towards that are actually worth it. Thanks for being on the show. Well, thank you, Jason. Thank it's, you, Jason. it's been a pleasure. 
Thank you for listening. For more resources like this, as well as articles and videos by all of our coaches, go to novus.global and click on resources. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe. That helps us out a lot. Rate and leave a review. If you didn't like us, just leave us alone. We drop new episodes every week and we don't want you to miss out. If you want to explore hiring a Novus Global Coach or becoming an executive coach at the Meta Performance Institute for Coaching, email us at begin at novus.global or click the link in the show notes. Thank you again for listening. And remember, dare to go beyond high performance.